joined us this morning and uh, this is our Rosemary and I's seventh Sunday here and we've been working through the Upper Room Discourse which is between John 13 and John 17 where Jesus was really having his last chance, his last tra- training opportunity with his disciples that he'd been training for three and a half years and we find out what was really important, his, his parting words. And so the title of the message this morning is Christ's Prayer for the Father's Glory. So in our passage, Jesus is praying for various people. And after this, he's going to head off out from the upper room or wherever he is, he is in John 17, uh, off to the Garden of Gethsemane. Hamish and I have joked a few times over the last few weeks about trying to get onto certain prayer warriors' prayer lists because if we figure if we can do that, we'll get the strategic spiritual advantage. Uh, if people say an old lady might be pulling out their card every morning and just praying for us, I think, man, that would be good. And uh, while we certainly do appreciate others praying for us, today is actually more about how Jesus Christ prayed for us and how he continues to pray for us. Think of that. It's not just some little old lady who's got time to pray. It's Jesus Christ who's sitting at the right hand of the Father continues to pray for us. And I'll give you some scriptures for that later. So if I can break my main idea up into two parts, I sort of tend to think of the main idea, what it meant then. Jesus prayed that he and his disciples would glorify the Father. But if I can make a thesis out of that, to say disciples of Jesus Christ glorify the Father in the world by being one in Christ, one in truth, and one in love. So let's look at how Christ prayed for himself and his disciples. So his prayer for himself to glorify the Father, and it's from John 17, verses 1 through to 5. Reading verse 1, for a start, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So again, it's saying when he had spoken these words, when he had spoken these words going back to John 13, all of those things that we've gone over for the last few weeks, he prayed this prayer. And... This is how he completes that upper room discourse. And this is his last prayer with the disciples before the crucifixion. At least it's the last one recorded. He did pray in the Garden of Gethsemane on his own, um, but his disciples were too busy sleeping to be able to hear what he was saying, so most of that's not recorded. And he says, glorify your son. And this... uh, Word uh, means to praise, to speak words of glory, to honour someone, to give high status or to attribute high rank, to cause someone to have glorious greatness. It's to be wonderful, be of exceptional value. So Christ is praying that the Father would do that for him so that he could do those things for the Father. And this request for glorification at this point really It includes sustaining Jesus in his suffering. 
It includes accepting his sacrifice. It includes resurrecting him and restoring him to the glory that he had before the world existed. Verse 2 we read, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Carry on to verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So here Christ's purpose here, he's asking for God to glorify him, not so that uh, people would still be talking about him thousands of years later, what like we are, but because a single-minded focus is to glorify the Father. And as came out in our Bible study, what applies to Christ in many ways applies to us because we read later on in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So if Jesus was sent to glorify the Father and we're sent in the same way as Jesus, then we are sent to glorify the Father too. I wonder what your purpose in life is. And I've got some slides here, Jerry. Maybe it's to make as much money as you can. Maybe that might bring you some joy. Or maybe it's sport. We've got a few sort of sports people in here. If you can call fire fighting sport, but uh, maybe maybe it's sport. Maybe that's going to give uh, you purpose and meaning in your life. Or uh, one of my favourite websites is despair.com. Don't go there when you're feeling down, but um, this one says mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. In other words, what not to do. That's a bit grim, I know, but it seems to touch my humour. No, none of those things. Eternal life is only found in knowing and glorifying the only true God. Uh, That is our purpose. Uh, And we won't find real purpose in anything else. We're created for that purpose. And when we stray from that purpose, we get gradually emptier, more frustrated, um, grumpier, angrier, whatever the effect is on you. Uh, You probably all know what I mean. So his purpose was passed on to his disciples. I read 17, 18 before. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. But also, verse 10, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So, yes, we have the same purpose as Christ, to glorify the Father. 1 Peter 4, 10-11 says, As each has received a gift. Now that assumes each of you have received a gift. Uh, That's the presupposition. So you have got a spiritual gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we've got a 2,000-year-old church history, but back in 1647, 
a group of believers came up with a, a uh, document called the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the first question there is, what is the chief and highest end of man? And there's a lot of people walking around in the earth asking that question at the moment. What's my purpose? I feel like I've got no purpose. Well, the answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. So I think they put it well, our earlier brothers and sisters, to glorify God and to fully to enjoy uh, to, and fully to enjoy Him forever. 1647 grammar was a bit different to mine. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, "Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory." John 17 verse 2 says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. This passage is really speaking about Christ's sovereignty or God's sovereignty and that we as believers are actually a gift to Jesus Christ. Disciples are the Father's gift to the Son and we see that coming up again and again in this chapter also in verse 6, verse 9, verse 24. And John 3.16 tells us that God's gift to the world is his only begotten son. So there's a few gifts being given here, us to Jesus Christ and then God the Father's gift to the world being his son. And there's other things that the Father gave in our chapter today. He gave... Jesus' authority. Uh, Jesus will judge the world. He has authority to do that. Uh, he's given work, verse 4. He's given glory, verse 5. And he's given us, verse uh, 22, or the glory through us in verse 22. He's given us words in verse 8. And the Father's name in verses 11 to 12. So there's a lot of things given to us. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ is eternal life. It's more than existing forever, because all will exist forever. We can't stop our human spirits continuing to live. We can kill our bodies, but our spirits live on. We don't die like a dog as such. When we live the Christian life, the abundant life, we glorify God. And that is the eternal life, the overflowing, the abundant life uh, that we are part of, that we, we started the day we were born again. And uh, I was just telling Stacy actually, today is my 35th birthday. 35 years ago today, uh, in, out the back of Australia, out the back of Dubbo, uh, I was born again. And so I've, that was when my eternal life started. Uh, that, that Zoe life, that abundant life, or the overflowing life. And it's continued 35 years on this earth by God's grace, and it will continue on forever and ever. And in verse 3 there it says, This is eternal life that they know you, the 
the only true God. And that's more than just knowing about him. It's more than knowing facts. It's the Greek word is gnosko, to learn to know a person through direct personal experience, implying a continuity of relationship. The emphasis in John 17.3 is on the interpersonal relationship which is experienced. And that interpersonal relationship with God is in the present tense. So while I quote 35 years ago, that relationship has gone on and it's actually got stronger and deeper and I trust him more and I know him better than I did 35 years ago. And... Yeah, that, uh, that's a great delight. That in itself is abundant, overflowing life for me. And also John 17, 26 tells us that knowing is continuous and progressive. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And I guess the more I get to know a loving God, the the more uh, I have a capacity then to love others. So the only place recorded uh, of Jesus Christ referring to himself as Jesus Christ is actually in verse 3 there as well. And yeah, it's interesting that he did that just before his crucifixion because he's talking about being there a human saviour that's the Jesus, and also the, the Christ being the anointed Messiah. So it's that combination of human being and God all in that one name together. So interesting that it doesn't come out uh, until this point in the book of John. 17 verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So that work included his messages combined with his miracles. We looked at that a little bit last week. Includes training his disciples and also dying on the cross. So the application, as we really picked up from our reading from Philippians 2, is we need to have that same mind of Christ in us, that our single-minded focus is to glorify God. And we can learn from Philippians, when that's our single-minded focus, then we never lose our joy. Philippians links joy and, and that single-minded focus together. So, yeah, we lose our joy when we lose our focus on glorifying God. Um, but when we have got that focus, strangely enough, we find we get joy at the same time. So we've seen Christ's prayer for himself. In summary, that he might glorify the Father. How about his prayer for the 11, the next few passages from verses 6 down to 9. Uh, sorry, 6 down to uh, 19. But I'll read 6 to 9 for a start. <clears throat> I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed 
that you sent me. So verses 6 to 9 tells us who Christ is praying for and who he is not praying for. So he's praying for those who have received him, those that know in truth that Jesus came from the Father, and for those that believed that the Father sent Jesus Christ. And he's not praying for the world at this point. John 17.6 says, uh, that's that same verse um, where it says, uh, I, I read it in the ESV, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were and you gave them to me. NIV has, I have revealed you rather than your name to those whom you gave me. And that's not a literal translation, but it's a good translation all the same. You and your name are very similar. When Jesus Christ revealed God to us, he revealed God's name. So it's revealing God's character to us. A person's name stands for the person, or it stands for their character. And where he says, uh, mentions the world there, those that you gave me out of the world, uh, and also verse 9, not praying for, for the world, that word is the cosmos. Uh, it's again a word that we use in English, but it's got quite a, a broad range of usages. It can mean the universe, the earth, can mean, mean the world system. In other words, the godless world standards. And it can mean people associated with the world system and estranged from God. So... Yeah, when you see that world, we just need to try and work out what it, what it's actually getting at. Is it talking about the physical world or the world system or people in the world? So thank God that through the 11 apostles, we too have received God's word, as in verse 8. We've come to know the truth and we have believed in Jesus Christ. And... That's really the, the, the test of Christianity. I mean, we could put in there repentance as well. Uh, comes with the receiving and knowing and believing. We turn from our sin. But yes, we're believing. There's, uh, we're not putting our trust in any other works of our own, but we're receiving uh, and we're knowing and we're believing that the Father sent Jesus Christ. So with that sort of framework for what a believer is, a very sort of light framework at this point, we move on and look further at the next stage of Jesus' prayer, and it was verses 10 to 12, a prayer for unity. He says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So back in verse 11, he says, Holy Father. So again, he doesn't usually refer to the Father as holy, but 
I think he maybe popped that in there because he's saying, Holy Father, keep them in your name. So if God is holy, if that's his character, he's saying, keep us in his holy name, his separate name and his character. And he carries on, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So our oneness, our unity is connected to the holiness of the Father. And us staying in the holiness of the Father or being kept in that character. There's a Māori proverb or a Māori whakatauki says, Hei totara wahi rua, hei kai nati ahi. Without unity and solidarity, we are vulnerable. So yes, uh, even, I'm not sure if they got that from scripture, but even other cultures recognize the importance of unity and solidarity. And it's important for us to survive. It was important for the 11 disciples to understand that that unity was important for them to get through the next uh, 350 or 310, 50 days together. So that leads on to the next prayer. After unity was a prayer for protection, verses 13 to 15. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So in verse 13, Jesus again states his purpose. He wants us to have joy. So we've seen that over and over again in, in the, the last six weeks, that his purpose is that we might have his joy. So, yeah, we can genuinely go to the scriptures to find out how does Jesus tell us, how does he, uh, what does he want us to know in order to have that joy? He's not trying to hide it from us. Yes, our Christian walks will be tough going at times. And we, Rosemary and I had a discussion a few weeks ago with a young lady and she was struggling with saying, well, you know, I just feel burdened, where's this joy? And we were saying, well, yeah, when we're, when we're walking with the Lord and everything's right, we do have that joy. Sometimes when we lose that joy, it's a little bit like pain in our body. Uh, we get a bit of pain and it tells us something's wrong. If we lose our joy, we've got to say something's wrong, something is not quite right here. And then we've got to start finding out, yeah, what's, what's gone wrong? Where did I divert from the path? Or, yeah, what's happening? Uh, yeah, that I'm losing my joy. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So the day that you received Christ's words, the day you knew the truth and the day you believed the Father sent Jesus Christ, again back to verse 8, in other words, the day you were born again, you got a new passport. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. So I now carry a dual passport, one for New Zealand Aotearoa and one for heaven. And 
Yeah, the one that I have for New Zealand Aotearoa, it keeps expiring every 10 years and I have to keep paying more money for it. The other one, uh, no, I don't have to ever renew that one. Uh, that's, for, that's for eternity. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. So we're sojourners and exiles. We don't belong in this world. We're just passing through. John 3.6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when we were born again, we got new heart desires. We got new goals. We got new values that spring from having a new God. And we'll never completely fit in the world again. So we shouldn't be too, too surprised when life's just a little bit awkward in the world. Uh, it's because we're not natives here. We're citizens of somewhere else. If you like, we're sort of reverse immigrants. And in verse 18 there, it's talking about being hated of the world. And we talked about that, was it last week, how we can expect that. But, um, just bring up another slide. Uh, a number of years ago, I was spray contracting in the Western Australian wheat belt. And I was working for a contractor. He had a, uh, a whole fleet of these rigs. And so the first night that I got there, I went into a house with a whole lot of other young guys from all over the world. And yeah, we, they were just sitting around talking. And for some reason, they started talking about the Ten Commandments. And they got to about three or four. And then uh, I thought, right, now's my opportunity, and I dived in, and I probably finished off the other uh, six or seven for them. And at that point, they all sort of went silent and looked at me and said, oh, are you a Christian? And there was one young man there from the UK, uh, and I can't uh, repeat his words on being recorded, but... Uh, it was beeping born-again Christians, and there was just hate in his words. It was the first time he'd met me, but immediately he hated me. And we actually got along all right. Um, yeah, we had to live together in the same house, and about 6 o'clock in the morning we were on our own, but uh, 8 o'clock at night we are back in the same house again. But a few weeks later, Satan had his way with that young man. Uh, he... Um, crashed his four-wheel drive and probably fell asleep, crashed one of those rigs into a gum tree, uh, had such bad brain damage that he never woke up and his parents came down from the UK to come and collect his body. So, um, yeah, a, a stern warning for those who do hate beeping born-again Christians. Um, yeah, Satan might have his way too, uh, and cut their lives short. I'm not sure if I did get the opportunity to fully share the gospel with him, but he had the opportunity to, to engage with a born-again Christian. And, yeah, again, remember John 15, 18 to 22 said that we would be hated. But John 15, 26 to 27 said that we were resourced and empowered to do the work the work of bearing witness. So, in John 14 and 16, it says, 
Jesus says, just as I am not of the world, a couple of times, just as I am not of the world. And Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, sorry, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus knows what it's like to be uh, awkward, to not really belong in this world. And so he can pray for us with empathy. And we know, yeah, we have a high priest who understands what we're going through. He understands the pull of the world and things like that. And yet, as Hebrews says, he was without sin. Uh, I can't say that of myself. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So part of that not being of the world is being separate from it, which was the part of that concept of holiness. There's a separation between us and the world. So being not of the world means, means that we are fundamentally different. It's a bit like a ship being in the ocean. The ship is not of the ocean, but it's in the ocean. And like a ship in the ocean, sometimes, yeah, we get the salt water coming into us, so we need a bilge pump. Uh, sometimes we need to get the world back out of us because we're not of the world, which kind of leads us again into our next point. Uh, next part of Christ's prayer, a prayer for sanctification. Verses uh, 16 through to 19. <clears throat> they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So sanctify means just simply set apart for a special use. If you're a believer here today, you've been set apart for a special use. And as Jesus prayed, that's to glorify God. And that sanctification is a process. Uh, it didn't happen immediately 35 years ago for me, uh, disappointingly. There was a number of things that immediately fell off, a number of things, interestingly, that I knew I had to repent of in order to come to a holy God. But there are other things that I was aware of, uh, unaware of, that took a, a long time to get out of my life, and that's still working now. So there's still this process of growth in terms of purity of motives. Uh, I've given up analysing my motives too much because I know they're always mixed. Uh, there's always, there's a, well, there's always because of my new nature some some good motives, but often mixed in there, there's, there might be some selfish motives as well. But I'm growing. We grow in purity of motives, purity of attitudes, purity of thoughts, and purity of actions. But it's a process. And he says there, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the truth. Uh, the truth, your word is truth. Psalm 119, verse 16, the sum of your word is truth. And we unpack that a little bit in our Bible study, that Jesus, the living word, the written word is the truth. And the Spirit is also called the Spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit's included in this prayer as well, indirectly. So this means that this sanctifying work is 
sorry, the means of the sanctifying work is God's truth. And that truth is communicated in the word. So as Jesus spoke the Father's words, the message about Jesus was heard, believed and understood. The disciples' hearts and minds were captured and this change in their thinking resulted in changes in their living. And the same is true of believers today. As they apply God's word to their lives, they are sanctified, set apart for God and changed in their motives, their attitudes and their thoughts. That's all the internal things. But those internal things then begin to affect our actions, our externals, in order to honour God. And I just wanted to add a, uh, a stern warning here in terms of the sanctification process, sanctified in truth. Because sometimes in our impatience and zeal as disciple makers, or even as disciples sometimes, we want to bypass God's process of sanctification. And we want to address the external actions before our would-be disciples grasp and understand the underlying truth. So we can tend to instruct with do's and don'ts rather than with the truth of God's word. And the result is invariably legalism. In other words, adding to the word of God. Our disciples then think that if they are keeping the do's and don'ts, that they're being sanctified. And before we know it, we've created our very own little Pharisee. And once an individual or a group is addicted to legalism, it seems almost impossible to come off that addiction. Galatians 3 verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So it's saying we can't be sanctified by keeping a whole list of do's and don'ts. They might help us to get into the word, but they in themselves are not what sanctifies us. It is the truth empowered by his Holy Spirit, all embodied in that same concept. So we hold vehemently to salvation by grace, but in our zeal for sanctified holy living, we risk falling into sanctification by works. And Galatians teaches against that. So that it's the same process. We're saved by grace, we're sanctified by grace. So let it not be so among us that we get into the sanctification by works process. Referring to man-made rules and regulations, Colossians 2 verse 23 says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we need to allow God's process of sanctification, not a humanistic or a a man-centered sanctification process to work in us or even to work in our disciples, to work in our children. Uh, We've got to do it God's way. Verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. How did the Father send Jesus Christ? He sent him as a baby, as a child, as a youth, as a young man, as a carpenter, possibly. His father was a carpenter. We're not actually told Jesus was a carpenter. After his baptism and temptation, he fully engaged with the world for three and a half years. 
so much so that the religious people, who never seem to have any joy, accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. I'm not saying those things make us joyful, but that's what they accused him of. Matthew 11, 18 to 19 says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, talking of John the Baptist, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Luke 7 verse 34 talks about wisdom justified by her children. Similar concept. So Christ's wisdom and ministry methods were justified by his disciples. And look at the impact that they had on the world. Compare that to the impact of the Jewish leaders' disciples, their little Pharisees. Uh, We don't hear about them after Jesus Christ, really. So again, the application, if we are in the world and fully engaged with the world, our methods may be questioned by the religious people of our day. Some will say we look no different to the world, but ironically, the world can tell that we are not of the world. A Christ-like ministry will bear fruit. So yes, as we move about in the world, we may look, we may look to religious people like we're of the world. Um, what does Jodie look like when she's out doing volunteer firefighting? work, I wonder. Does she look like a Christian? She probably just looks like any other firefighter, dressed in the same clothes, doing the same job. And a religious person might look at her and say, she should be home, or she should be fellowshipping with the saints. But she's engaging with the world. And I can guarantee that the other firefighters know that underneath that uniform is a totally different personality, a totally different set of motives, a different set of attitudes. And so the world can see we're different, but often religious people can't see that we're different from the world. The religious people will just see the externals. And it is dangerous work. I don't mean the firefighting, but it's dangerous work being in the world. It's only a matter of time before we're going to get hurt. John 16.33 says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So it's not for the faint-hearted, this being in the world but not of the world. But Jesus will be praying for us, and it's safer than not abiding in the vine. It's safer than being fruitless, and it's safer than being thrown into the fire as being useless. So we need to train our disciples again, train ourselves, train our children to engage with the world, to fully engage with the world. Luke 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Again, that was his purpose. What's our purpose? To seek and to save the lost. Uh, We're not going to do that effectively uh, in our little huddle here on a Sunday morning. Some will come in, but most of the time we've got to go out and engage. Verse 19. And for their sake I consecrated myself, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Christ's consecration in this context is probably being set apart 
for the work of the cross. Because without that work of the cross, we could not be sanctified in the truth. He had to deal with our sin so that we could be connected with the Holy Spirit and so that his Holy Spirit could then work with us, work in us by his word to bring about that sanctification. So Christ prayed for unity, he prayed for protection, he prayed for sanctification of his disciples. And if we want to ask anything in his name, we can ask those very same things. And the third group of people that Christ prayed for are for those who will believe. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, saints. Hallelujah. Jesus prayed for us, and that was one of the impacts that uh, people realized or brought out from this morning, that yes, even way back then, Jesus Christ prayed for us. And he knew who were his then. I was talking to Hamish again before the uh, before the service that, um, yeah, we might pray just generally, oh, we pray for the believers that will come to know you in 2020. But Jesus actually knew us personally who was going to be saved. So he was, you know, if I can extrapolate just a little bit, you know, he was he was really praying personally for us right back then. And he's still praying for me. Romans 8 verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, noted all hinges on the resurrection, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus Christ is still interceding for us. He's praying for us. We're on his prayer list. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So praise God, yeah, we're on Jesus Christ's prayer list and he's right at the Father's side. So uh, it's, not, uh, it's not that he's even praying through anyone, he's right there beside the Father praying for us. So what's he, what's he praying? Verse 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now this is his last prayer before he goes to the cross. Uh, we brought out this morning, this is really the only prayer that we have, uh, a long prayer of his that he, we really see into his heart is what his will is for believers. And what does he pray for? He prays for unity, for oneness. Why is unity amongst Christians so important? Well, it's tied to our mission. It's tied to the very purpose that we're still here on earth, that the world might believe, verse 21, and that the world might know, verse 23. So that's good. Uh, All very well to say, let's be united. But how are we united? And Christ's prayer right here in John 17 actually gives away all the secrets of how we can be united, what the basis of our unity is. 
and other places it says actually we have that unity, we just need to protect it. So verse 11, just going back a bit, what's the basis of our unity? It's that we are one in God's name. So we covered this before. Um, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So when we, we're walking in holiness, when we're in his character, when we're one with him, then we're one with each other. Uh, not an issue, no striving, no, um, no reconciliation meetings required there. Yeah, we're just one. So when we abide in Christ's in God's character, we already have that unity. And what is that standard? How high? What sort of unity is it? It's the same standard of unity that is required or that's evident in the Trinity. We have a divine example of unity for human application. That's the standard for us. To quote Lane and Tripp, God is the only properly functioning community in the universe. Amen to that. Uh, we often joke about uh, dysfunctional families, about your, your dysfunctional family and my dysfunctional family. Families are dysfunctional, um, but God is the only proper, properly functioning community in the universe. When believers' relationships fall short of the Godhead's relationships, we actually misrepresent God. We fall short of demonstrating his glory. We fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And again, unity does not equal uniformity. Like the Trinity, we will have a diversity in expression, but we'll be unified in essence, we'll be unified in love, and unified in purpose. It is not about the externals of the flesh, but the internals and eternals of the spirit. God's name, his character, in other words, living in us. So where you see high levels of external uniformity and conformity, there is usually, again, a legalistic or a religious, even a cultish spirit there. Uh, unity actually embraces our differences, our strengths, uh, and our diversity. So we are, the basis of our unity uh, is in God's name or in God's character. Second basis of our unity is we are one in truth. So our unity is based on truth, God's word, our final authority for faith and life. And again, legalism adds to that truth. Liberalism ignores that truth. Mysticism takes a subjective interpretation of that truth. And so none of us have a perfect interpretation or application of truth. We're all on a journey. So we need to accept, uh, so except for the essentials like who God is and how we can be saved, we actually need a lot of humility and grace towards others whom God has lovingly accepted. So unity is, uh, we don't need uniformity in terms of every last uh, interpretation of scripture. It's not what it's saying. But we do need unity in terms of having received him, knowing the truth and believing on Jesus Christ. In other words, being a genuine Christian. Third basis of unity, we are one 
in Christ with Christ in us. And if we are both abiding in Christ and in the Father, we are one. If one or both of us are no longer abiding in Christ, we've got a problem, we've got division. Again, to quote another writer, A.W. Tozer, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Unquote. Another one from Miroslav Volf. Communion with this God is at once also communion with others who have entrusted themselves in faith to the same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship both with God and with all others who stand in communion with God. And Paul was bringing out that this morning. Once we have uh, unity with God, we have unity with each other at the same time. And we seek fellowship. And uh, I use the example with Rosemarie and I. If, uh, if Rosemarie is in step with God and I am in step with God, then Rosemarie and I are in step with each other. 1 John 2 verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we need to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. So when there's problems, again, we've stopped abiding. Uh, because we're not walking in the same way as he walked. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul addresses divisions in the church caused by following men instead of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 10-13, and I'll read it. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptised in the name of Paul? So, what does that look like today? Uh, we don't say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, but uh, what does it look like? Well, instead of referring directly to Scripture, remember that's how we're sanctified, that's our basis, it's the truth, we refer to other people. Uh, we defer to what man has said about Scripture. So they take a position or abide not in Jesus Christ but abiding in the teaching of another human being where it might not or might be going beyond scripture so Colossians 2 verse 8 says see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ So yes, beware of the, the man following the antithesis of this unity where, yes, we, we need to be tuned. We're one in Christ. Uh, we're not one uh, united in a particular human being. 
fourth basis of our unity, we are one because of Christ's glory. So the Father glorified Jesus Christ when he resurrected him and when Jesus ascended to the Father. We were dead in sin, but we were resurrected in Christ to be born again, to become new creations. So we have seen Christ's glory, verse 24, and Christ has glorified us, Romans 8.30, and given us at least some of his glory. And when we walk in resurrection life, we walk as one and we manifest God's triune glory. So it's all tied together. And the fifth and final basis for our unity, we are one in God's love. Verses 25 to 26. It's in John 17. <clears throat> o righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the Father with which you have loved me, sorry, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So when the love with which the Father loved the Son is in us and Christ is in us, we are one with each other. And remember that we need to abide in God's love, John 15.10. And Colossians 3.14 says, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is not only the test of our discipleship, but love is also a basis of our unity. And to break that unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, it really becomes a matter of uh, stepping back from love and that's the first commandment the first and second commandment love God, love people so in conclusion in John 17 1 Jesus started by praying that he would glorify the Father in 17 10 Christ acknowledged that he is glorified in those who receive, know and believe him and believers glorify God by being in the world yet set apart from and distinct from the world. To accurately manifest the oneness of God, believers must all be perfectly one in Christ, in truth and in love. So this completion of Christ's prayer concludes what we call the Upper Room Discourse. Christ has given final instructions to his disciples about believing, about love, about the Holy Spirit, about abiding in Christ and about the coming persecution. The hour had indeed come and Christ left Jerusalem to cross the brook Kidron, taking the exact same path as King David took when Ahithophel uh, um, betrayed him all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Father did glorify the Son and the Son did glorify the Father. The tired and bewildered disciples did regroup as one and now billions believe that the Father sent the Son. So the love with which the Father loved the Son is in us and he is in us and no one can take that joy from us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this private sitting into the upper room discourse 
that uh, the Apostle John recorded for us those very private words that you gave to your disciples before you went to the cross. And Lord, I thank you for your prayer for us. I thank you that you still pray for us. And Lord, I pray for these people here. I pray for Good News Baptist. I pray for the church around the world that we would glorify you. And I pray that we would be sanctified in truth. Your word is truth. Lord, and I pray that we would be one. Lord, we'd be one in you and one with each other. Lord, that the world might know that that you were sent from the Father. Lord, these are huge prayers and big asks, but we also know that we can ask anything in your name and you will do it. So we praise you. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your family, be part of your your uh, your church of believers. And Lord, we, we rejoice in it. Pray that our joy would remain. And Lord, that we would glorify you in all that we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory alone. Amen.